No matter where your business is in Canada, connectivity shouldn't be a concern. Whether your business is rural, remote, or urban, reliable, scalable internet is available to you and your business. Explore Business is expanding our network. With our extensive fiber, fixed wireless, and satellite networks, we're able to bring you the connectivity your business deserves, with the ability to grow right where you are. With investments in fiber and 5G technology, Explore Business is your new choice for business internet. Get connected with Explore Business today. Are you ready to clear a new path? Welcome to Clearing a New Path podcast, a space for the underrepresented voices in rural Canada. I'm your host, Shauna Ray. Each episode, we'll speak authentic truth because it's the truth that connects us. We'll examine issues, solutions, and hope outside of the city limits. Clearing a New Path podcast is an invitation to listen and learn along with me on the road to building a more united, feminist, anti-racist rural Canada, one rooted in diversity and driven by reconciliation. Let's learn together, clearing a new path. onto House of Common Grounds, speak in these chambers, I'm reminded every step of the way I don't belong here. I have never felt safe or protected in my position, especially within the House of Commons. Often having pep talks with myself in the elevator or taking a moment in the bathroom stall to maintain my composure. When I walk through these doors, not only am I reminded of the clear colonial house on fire I am willingly walking into, I am already in survival mode. That was the voice of former Nunavut MP Momalak Kakak in her speech in Parliament before leaving her seat last year. Many women, and particularly marginalized women, are targeted, not just by their parliamentary opponents, but often by members of the public in their own communities. But some of the worst abuse comes from social media. Is it any wonder women in rural and remote Canada aren't running? In both rural Manitoba and rural Ontario, a vast number of mayors and reeves in this year's municipal elections are being acclaimed, facing no competition. Across Canada, women make up less than a third of elected officials. That means two out of three current politicians will never experience periods, pay discrimination, or sexual objectification. Two out of three will never be reduced to their gender. How do we expect those politicians to prioritize issues that don't affect them? In 2000, Canada ranked 27th in the world for women's representation in Parliament. Now, we're 60th. 
A new abacus data study found that two out of three Canadians are either concerned, disappointed, surprised, or angry to learn that Canada ranks so poorly. And the majority think political parties or the government, rather than women themselves, should be responsible for ensuring equal representation of men and women in politics. The organization Informed Opinions commissioned that study. Informed Opinions amplifies the voices of women and gender-diverse individuals for a more democratic Canada. Sherry Graydon created Informed Opinions with the aim of bridging the gender gap in Canadian public discourse. She joins me to talk about the study, the state of women in politics here in Canada, and about Informed Opinions' new campaign, Balance of Power. Sherry, you've recently started a campaign with Informed Opinions, and part of that is the awareness that Canada is 60th out of 187 countries when it comes to women being represented in politics. Why should people find this alarming? Well, what was interesting uh, in the polling that we did was that, in fact, more than four in five Canadians believe that a balance of power between men and women is critically important. They understand that elected officials can better represent the realities and perspectives of the citizens they serve if they, uh, if they come from both, both women and men and all the diversities in between. Those informed perspectives benefit communities and ultimately our economy. And when you appreciate that women experience many aspects of life differently than men, and those realities inform our priorities, our insights, our solutions, it's pretty damning that we haven't addressed this previously. The fact that Canada was 27th a couple of decades ago and we've dropped to 60th shows you that other countries have woken up to why this is a priority, and they have been really deliberate about ensuring that women have a chance to occupy half the seats in their parliaments. I think that there has been a push over the past, I want to say even decade, to get more women involved in politics. There have been campaigns, there have been political parties that say that they want gender parity. But when women do become part of political life. They are threatened. They are bullied, generally disrespected. How do we tackle that? There's no question that it's a very unappealing environment for lots of women. And that indeed, as we've witnessed very recently, uh, women are, are now being attacked, not just on social media, but as Christy Freeland was in Alberta, uh, in person. And so that's absolutely a deterrent. Most women will never want to run for politics. Most men will never want to run for politics either. And so that is something that Informed Opinions is also working on. We launched a Toxic Hush uh, campaign earlier this year to encourage our government in its legislation um, that it's currently developing to explicitly address the realities that women face. And we believe that the social media platforms need to be held accountable. 
that there are measures that both governments and companies themselves can and should take around eliminating anonymity and acting more quickly to shut down hate speech. So that's absolutely an issue. What I would say, though, is that there will always still be good qualified people, men and women, who want to serve, have the capacity to serve and step forward. And the other countries that have achieved gender parity in politics have not solved these problems either, but they have achieved parity. And one of the things that happens when you have equal numbers of women and men in a legislature or parliament is that the tenor of the debate changes. When there's less testosterone, there are fewer elbows up in the corners. There's not the kind of misogyny and sexist language being used. The ability that women have been socialized to exercise in terms of collaborating and working across the aisle makes uh, a difference to those houses. And that in turn can influence the broader public discourse. So, you know, the degradation of political speech that's happened over the last six years in great tribute to the power of a certain former U.S. president can't be underestimated. Political leadership matters. And so when there are more women in that space leading uh, in a different way, that will have an impact. Is that inviting men into the conversation and, and ensuring that they are putting an end to the bullying themselves? as well, instead of fighting across party lines, is it a responsibility of the men that are representatives to stop what's happening, call it out? Male allies are critical in all of the endeavors that uh, women are undertaking to achieve equality in whatever realm, and not just women, but Um, LGBTQ folks, people of color, we need men, uh, especially white men who still hold most of the power to be part and parcel and integrated into, into that response. And as I mentioned, I know there are lots of good men in the political arena who also lament the kind of abuse and harassment that still occurs in Parliament, at city councils, in uh, in provincial and, and territorial legislatures. And so I think they absolutely do need to be part of the solutions. And what we're advocating for with the Balance of Power Project is that political parties themselves, and some of them are already doing this, but political parties themselves uh, do what their counterparts in other countries are doing and embrace a voluntary quota or target system and ensure that they have the processes in place within their party structures to recruit, to support, to run women and diverse candidates in ridings where they have a chance of actually winning. Well, that's part of it too, isn't it? They put women in ridings where they can't possibly win. And then that shows externally that they're making an effort. You brought that up. And and so let's talk about that. Yeah, we want more than performative equality. We, We want people who have been 
you know, attending Equal Voice events for years, who have been uh, paying lip service to the importance of equality to put their money where their mouth is, as the expression goes. And we did some analysis early this year. We spoke with party insiders to find out what, if anything, they were doing proactively on this front. And on our Balance of Power website, we have uh, an interactive map of Canada that if you hover over any province or territory, it will give you the breakdown of what percentage of MPs or MLAs are women versus men by their party affiliation. And the map makes it really clear who's acting on their statements about the importance of gender parity. Because if you have party in government and uh, 80% of their MLAs or MPs are, are men, that tells you that they're probably not taking it very seriously. So, you know, what we know is that in New Zealand, for example, and Iceland, who both have women at 49% and 47% respectively, the part, political parties in those countries did what we're suggesting. They embraced voluntary gender quotas and achieved those numbers as a result of doing that. The other thing that we found really interesting in researching the issues leading up to this campaign was some research conducted by um, Samara Canada, the Center for Democracy, and they determined that between 2004 and 2019, 83% of all candidates that were run by parties in federal elections, 83% of those were appointed by the parties. So it's not mostly a question of there being competitive races, nomination races, and women not succeeding in those races. The truth is that most candidates are recruited and appointed by the parties, which means that the parties have control over who they, who they nominate. One of the things that is the biggest hurdle, I think, though, and in, in you alluded to what happened in the US, a lot of the bullying and, and disrespectful and, and frankly, frightening events that have happened where women politicians were targeted, benefited certain organizations and certain party beliefs. And so how do we get to a place where all parties are on board with this. Boy, if I had the answer to that, we could solve so many problems, couldn't we, Shauna? <laughs> um, yeah. I don't know that there's an easy fix to convince people who are currently um, leveraging division and weaponizing ignorance in order to sow anger and uh, exacerbate misinformation that's a critical problem. Donald Trump was a master of that. We have politicians here in Canada who now appear to be emulating that strategy as a means to mobilizing a base and, and getting elected within their parties. I don't know the easy solution to that. What I know is that one of, uh, one of the things that inspired informed opinions to enter into this conversation in the first place was our own research that found that 60% of 
men and women most often quoted by influential media in Canada were elected officials. So Informed Opinions was established specifically to bridge the gender gap in public conversations by ensuring that women are quoted and consulted and interviewed by the media more often. And when we discovered that most of the people being quoted in the media the most often are politicians, we realized, okay, we can't achieve our mandate until women hold half the seats of power. So we went to Equal Voice. We said, how can we help? What can we do strategically? Um, balance of power is the result of what we're what we landed on. And when women's voices are present in public conversations, that too changes the public conversations. And we know that although legacy media are less influential than they used to be, they are still amplified on social media. And when we have more women commenting and providing analysis and expertise and insights and solutions, that will also change our broader conversations and they will get more airtime than they're currently getting. Someone that has had some of that airtime as the mayor of Peterborough, Ontario, is Diane Terrian. Mayor Terrian has not been shy about giving it back to folks that have disrupted her town in the name of freedom during the throes of the pandemic and even this summer. She's not afraid to curse, dropping F-bombs, and in her words, blocking trolls with abandon on Twitter. She's fielded some of the most public vitriol with a fierceness that inspires. But she's not running again in this year's municipal election. She talks openly about her experience, the myriad of reasons why she isn't running again, including the misogyny and patriarchy she faced, and occasionally from senior staff, and what she hopes for the future. Why did you run? I first ran for council back in 2014 for city council seat in Peterborough. Uh, I moved to Peterborough in 2010 to do my master's at Trent um, Canadian and Indigenous Studies. I've never been somebody that was like thought I would be in politics. Like as a, I mean, I always wanted to be a rock star, but I can't sing. Um, and I don't have the patience to learn an instrument because I just am too ADD and want to dance all the time. So I always had really strong opinions about stuff and, you know, came to Peterborough, fell in love with the community, did my master's degree. And then I was TAing a course called Canada the Land. And this was in 2012, 13. And there was this discussion that the prof brought up around this issue that's been longstanding in Peterborough about a about a road bridge called the Parkway, which if you're local to Peterborough, it was like originally planned in 1947 and it kind of resurfaces every decade or a couple decades. And so there, the, the mayor at the time, you know, wanted to bring it back and it involves building this huge big bridge through the, the old growth cedar, this urban space that we have called Jackson Park. The community has long been opposed to it. There was a public meeting under the Planning Act and I decided I wanted to go and speak to it. And so, you know, I put on my, you know, my sort of suit that I had that I wore for job interviews and stuff, because I knew like, I'm going to be talking to these old boys. And I went in and, you know, I gave the speech, I stayed for the night, listened to all these other people. And then after that, I just, I started going to council meetings, you know, this is way before the pandemic. So I would go and sit in council chambers. I, sometimes I was the only one there and I would just watch the conversations and the reactions and 
I lived in the downtown area and we have a ward system in Peterborough and there's two counselors per ward. And I remember looking around the table, there was only one woman around the table at that time. The average age must have been like 65. Not that I have anything against older folks Mm -hmm. generally. And I remember like looking at some of these counselors who just were like a, some of them were like half asleep during these really important debates. Constituents would come in to give a delegation. And I remember one in particular would be like kind of rolling his eyes just not taking it seriously. And I remember just thinking like, I could do that. And I would actually, I think, be better at it than what we have there. I talked to a few people and I said, I want to run for city council. So many people were like, why would you run for city council? You've only, you, you're not from here. People don't know who you are. You're never going to win. You're never going to win. Yeah. Again, the you're not from here thing was a big thing back then. And it still is to a degree. Still is. Yeah. But the difference is that like, I moved to Peterborough with no networks. I didn't know anybody. So I I said, yeah, you're right. People don't know who I am. So I better go knock on every freaking door in this ward and introduce myself to people. And the long-term incumbents don't do that. They just sort of assume they're going to get reelected. And so they didn't take me seriously in 2014. They didn't take me seriously in 2018 either. You know, I knocked on doors for months and months and months. You know, I have a chronic knee injury because of it. And, uh, (laughs) but I talked to people and I said, you know, I'm dietarian, I'm running for city council. um, And I want to know what's important to you in this community. Um, And just open the conversation for people to to teach me about what their neighborhood problems were and that kind of thing. And so I I won, I hustled, like I'm a hustler, you know, that's, Mm -hmm. you know, that's what you have to do when you don't have... When you don't come from wealth and you don't come from a family name or any of that kind of stuff, the city itself is extremely progressive. The youngest black woman ever elected, uh, Camille Capo, uh, Stephen Wright elected in the North End, a black man um, originally from Jamaica, Kemi originally from Nigeria. So immigrants on council, two black folks on council, openly queer folks on council, you know, more diverse than the city of Toronto. Councillor Capo is not running again. I'm not running again. Councillor Kim Zippel, who's the other really progressive, brilliant woman, is not running again. Yeah, it's just been a really interesting journey to see how the city's changed because some people just, again, assume they're going to get in because their last name is whatever it is. But again, going to the door these days, you got people that have lived here for two years from Toronto. They're like, I don't know. That that means nothing to them. But in the old in the old boys club that we have here, they haven't, they can't process that, which is why, you know, they never took me seriously as mayor, a lot of them, or they worked to undermine me since day one because they thought it was just some kind of some kind of fluke. And I was some kind of like usurper that came in and it's like, no, I was democratically elected and I worked my ass off to be so. So yeah, it's been a, it's been a challenge. So let's talk about that challenge. Once you got elected uh, first as a counselor and then as mayor, what did you encounter uh, from your male counterparts and, and some of the folks in your community? Like what kind of things did you deal with? The mayor that we had that that was in from 2010 to 2018 when I when I won, I mean I disagreed on policy and a bunch of stuff, but I didn't you know campaign in a negative way or any of that kind of stuff. He was known for the council was known for having six five split votes because he was really able to whip the vote, and nobody in the local media or whatever ever said like, oh he's a bully or he's a bitch or whatever. But right. when I got elected right. uh, as mayor when there was this division on council over stuff, it was like, well, Diane can't unite people. Mayor Tarion is, is so divisive. And it's like, well, sure. Maybe that's true. It's because I stick to my principles and what I believe in, but that's what I was elected to do. But again, people don't say that that's that same thing about a man when he uses the same sort of 
tactics or when he has consistently six, five votes. That's not consensus, but people don't care. Anyway, so my first term as counselor was, you know, um, I had to deal with, again, uh, some of the men on council sort of, you know, some of them were great. Some of them sort of treated me as like a bit of a novelty, like, oh yeah, this little girl is around the table now. Like, ha ha ha. I had to tell many of them many times, like, don't talk about how I look. Stop talking about what I'm wearing. Stop talking about my weight. Like, I'm not talking about how you look, but that's something that women deal with in all workplaces all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, when I was elected mayor again, I was elected with like 69% of the votes. So like a huge landslide win. Yeah. Um, and almost immediately, uh, I had to deal with a couple of the sort of old boys and their supporters in our local print media, just trying to, again, make it seem like it's it was not legitimate. Because that's what happens when progressives progressives win and we're seen as not legitimate conservatives can win by the smallest margin and they act like we earned everything but when progressives win it's just seen as like well they're you know um there's a different treatment and especially when they're women or people of color or indigenous folks and again we don't have enough of those people around the table because again they're disincentivized to run because of the bullshit that they see people going through you have fought back Many do not. What kind of an attitude do you have to have? Because regardless of how you absorb it or you let it roll off your back, they still hurt. I mean, the things that people say are so nasty and so personal. They're not arguing your point. They're actually attacking you personally. You know, I'm pretty tough. Like I bartended for years. Like I know how to deal with creepy and <laughs> angry old men. You know, I, I learned uh, I learned that skill when I was a 20-something tending bar. And again, these men aren't used to being called out or snapped back at, right? They're used to women just kind of like acquiescing to what they say and not having a woody, woody retort. And the social media is kind of a different animal because so many yeah. people say things online that they wouldn't say to your face. Um, and again, the things I've dealt with mostly from colleagues or whatever are not the same kind of personal things. They're just like subtly sexist and whatever. I mean, online, like I deleted my, I deleted Facebook years ago because it's just a fucking cesspool. Twitter, I block, I, I have it in my bio. I block trolls with wild abandon because again, like, you know, there's just, I just don't have time for that. You know, I just try to ignore it. You know, I have a good solid group of friends and family around me and supporters who will help kind of clap back. But the thing is too, I was talking about this with a friend the other day because we had Peterborough Pride this weekend and a bunch of people were coming up to me and saying like, we're sad you're not running again, da, 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 da. But the thing is, none of those people really like publicly defended me when I was going through a bunch of shit. Um, And that's the other thing that progressives need to know, like conservatives, and again, not to make it like that kind of dichotomy, but when women and people of color and marginalized folks in general are being attacked by like our local media, by trolls online, by somebody like in the street or at the store, if you don't actually stand up and say, you know, and, and shut it down, like it doesn't help us. So I remember having one, one of my colleagues, one of my male colleagues come into the office a couple years ago. And he said, you know, Oh, I saw what some people were saying online and, and I was going to say something. I just wanted you to know. And I'm like, okay, but you didn't. So you're telling me to make yourself feel better Mm -hmm. because that doesn't help me at all that you, are telling me in private that you wanted to support me, but you didn't take a stand publicly and you were elected to be a leader. So lead. Um, And that's the thing too. I remember going through this frustration with um, 
my former partner, um, and I love him. He's great. Um, and, uh, but he has like a, you know, a good job. He works at the university and has a bunch of tenured professor friends. And I was trying to get somebody to send in a letter to the editor. I was like, I will draft it. I just need somebody to send it in with their name on it. And none of these men wanted to put their name on it, even though they were like tenured professors, like mm-hmm. the most privileged in our community with job security and safety. And they still wouldn't publicly go on the record supporting me. And then they'll say, oh, it's too bad you're not running again. It's like, well, if you guys had ever stood up and taken a stand, you know, things would be different. We would have more progressive people and more young people and more uh, black folks and indigenous folks running and staying in politics if they know that they're supported, not just at the ballot box day, but during like during the real rough times when you're actually in office. I think that that's an important thing for people to hear because- just recently, CBC did a report um, about Ontario, rural Ontario, and a lot of Reeves and mayors are being acclaimed because nobody's running against them. Yeah. And and that is troubling, very yeah. troubling. Absolutely. Because that means that the same old is going to continue with no one to actually challenge them. And, and I, yeah. I don't mean in the election, I mean, afterwards, when they're sitting around that horseshoe or the table or whatever it is, there's not yeah. going to be a voice, a dissenting voice that can, yeah. you know, counter. But what you just said about allies not coming forward and, and helping, it's got to be exhausting. So, I mean, there's myriad, myriad reasons why I'm not running again. Um, I mean, it's been an, a very challenging term with the pandemic with, Mm -hmm. you know, the opioid crisis and housing crisis that we deal with in Peterborough, you know, but a lot of it comes down to a, a lack of support from the allies, like I talked about, Mm -hmm. um, as well as a lack of support from, um, some senior staff at city hall. Um, in fact, like outright hostility from some of them, um, as well as members of council. And this is the thing that I find turns a lot of women off of, of politics too, is like the politicking of it, the horse trading, the back room, dealings, the backstabbing, all that kind of stuff. Um, And so then on top of that, you have all of the issues that we're dealing with as a council, particularly the increased workload of what's been downloaded from the provincial government over the last 20, 30 years. So it's not just the conservatives here, the liberals are guilty of that too. But with housing, we've been begging for help with opioids and haven't gotten where we need to get uh, social assistance and ODSP and all those things that have been downloaded to the municipality as well as the fact that you have a growing city and growing expectations from people, um, but a limited uh, revenue generation stream. Uh, And then of course, people always want to complain about property taxes and fair enough. Um, (laughs) But the workload has grown exponentially. And then you throw in social media and again, all these different ways of people to contact you. I mean, I strongly believe right now, and most councils in Peter, or sorry, in Ontario are part-time. I strongly believe we should have one full-time counselor per ward and that it should pay, like, I'm the only full-time employee at the city that doesn't have any benefits or any, like, anything beyond, like, I get my salary, which is a good salary, fair enough. Again, my assistant makes more than I do. But, like, if you want people to treat it like professionals, you need to pay them and treat them as professionals. Otherwise, you get what we've had, you know, historically, council was a volunteer position when you go back to the days of aldermen and whatever. So it was the rich business guys and the guys that could get a union leave that were able to take this job on. And 
for the amount of work that it is now, where it's supposed to ostensibly be part-time, but it's not. It's just people do the cost-benefit analysis. And so if you have a young family and you're working full-time, to put in the amount of work and deal with the expectations and the public public scrutiny and all that for, you know, 30 grand a year, it's just not, it's not worth it. So many people talk to me about like, I want to run, but I see what you go through and yeah. I can't believe it only pays this much. And, mm-hmm. and again, you don't want people doing it just for the money, but you also can't have people doing it who are only able to do it because they have the money. And that's sort of the crossroads that we're at. Um, and there's, we have this debate every term of council about like council compensation And there still is this holdover from some of those old boys about like, well, it's public service. You should volunteer. And it's like, that's great for you to say because you have a full pension and benefits because you got a job straight out of high school and worked there for 50 years and retired. There's nothing (laughs) wrong with that. But that's not the reality of young people these days. That ain't happening for anyone. Millennials and then Gen Z were like screwed, you know? Did you get into politics because you thought you could change the system from the inside? I think naively at some point, yes. You know, and this is the same thing, like I I worked for the provincial government for a little bit when I was uh, for like a year and a half after I came out of grad school and, and sort of just kind of got frustrated by the bureaucracy and, Mm -hmm. you know, municipally there's, you know, you're kind of closer to the community and you get Mm -hmm. to do more grassroots stuff. But, you know, our city hall, we have some, some very top officials there who have been there since before I was even born and who you know, haven't necessarily like lived anywhere else or worked anywhere else or have a perspective on like there was never a culture of like professional development or wanting to learn from other municipalities. And so when I came in, you know, I I sat on the Eastern Ontario Mayor's Caucus. The previous mayors never participated in those kind of regional bodies because they didn't think they could learn anything from it. And so I kind of quickly realized, oh, well, there's some folks in here, not just on council, but on the staff side too, that are like deeply entrenched in the way things are, the way things always have been done, which we know isn't working, but it's really hard to change. It's really hard to change, especially when you don't have the support of your council necessarily. I know I'm preaching to the converted uh, when I say that maybe inside of administration in a lot of rural and remote communities, there's women that have risen to the top of you know the administration pool because they played the game, because they were involved yes. in the capitalist, in the colonial, in the patriarchal system, they learned to play it. They learned and benefited from it. Yep. And so if there is change to be done, where does that leave them? Right? Yeah. They're so used to having to to play that game that they're, you know, there's a lot of internalized misogyny, which I've dealt yeah. with, particularly with one with one specific staff member, like a lot of internalized. And, and there's also a, um, an element of ageism that comes into it because I was elected, I was 32. So I was younger than a lot of these people's kids. Mm. Um, and so it was just kind of like, okay, again, like they wanted to pat me on the head and say, okay, little girl, like go back to your, go back to your office and just be quiet. And, um, and that's not how I roll. You know, I've tried to, you know, and continue to kind of rock the boat. And especially now that I'm like outgoing and it's like, I have zero fucks to give, you know, like I'm calling out the bullshit as I see it. I think more people need to do it. It's amazing how many people have reached out to me, women, not just women, but men also saying like, thank you for speaking up. We need more people to do it. And I'm like, you can do it too. And I get that not everybody has the personality to want to really like shake it up like that, but we need more people to actually have the ovaries to do that. 
You know? <laughs> so well said. So what do you say to people when, if they ask you in person, like, I mean, I know people can say all kinds of shit online. Everybody's um, really brave behind a keyboard, right? Yeah. But, oh yeah. But what do you say to people when they challenge that you have dropped F-bombs and, and stuff like that and say that it's unprofessional? I don't agree I that it is, but. Some of the most vile things I've heard said or by count by politicians and counselors yep. have been under this like veil of decorum. I've heard racist and misogynistic and homophobic stuff said, but they're not swearing. So people don't call them out on it. And it just goes unchallenged. Um, mm. People don't like women swearing in particular. People want to police what women say. I find there's also a real element of classism in it. Yeah. Um, because again, there's this tone policing, like, I didn't grow up wealthy. I didn't go to like private boarding school to learn how to save henceforth and therefore to fucking whatever. <laughs> like I grew up, it, you know, my mom swears, you know, my mom, I learned mm -hmm. the effort from my mom. I, she didn't mean to, for it, but you know, young kids pick up on what they hear all the time. Yeah. Um, and I've, you know, I've gotten in, I, I got in trouble at school for, you know, uh, using profane language. It's just always how I've been. And again, sometimes you need to, make a point. And so when I, in particular, when I've used uh, the F word on Twitter, and again, I don't swear around the council table. I don't yeah. swear at the ribbon cutting for the new elementary school. There's a time and a place for that language. Twitter yeah. is a cesspool anyways, people. Like, why are you getting upset about somebody dropping an F-bomb on Twitter? Um, <laughs> and that was a very specific targeted comment to fascists who are trying to undermine democracy and trying to arrest our local police trying to inflict harm on our community, tying up our local police so that they weren't able to respond to domestic violence calls or overdoses in our community. So they're, they were actively harming our community. I have an MA. I can have a scholarly debate. Like I think I'm fairly articulate most of the time. Again, there's a time and a place where you have to meet people where they are. And those people don't deserve me to kind of think out a scholarly argument to try to change their mind because it ain't going to work. I treat them with the same amount of respect I think I treat them with more respect than they treated our community by telling them to fuck off because they came here with the intent specifically to cause harm and disruption. And they did. And I don't, I'm not going to stand idly by or say, Oh, please don't do that. We know that that being polite about it with, with these convoy people doesn't work. They occupied Ottawa. They occupied our nation's capital for, you know, the better part of a month because people wouldn't tell them to get the fuck out. I mean, some of the residents did, but th the leaders were just AWOL. It is troubling how, extremist some of the rural communities have been and i don't know somebody who well in my circle who who lives in a rural community like in different parts of canada that isn't intimidated by a truck with the canadian flags on the back and the fuck trudeau across the window yeah and, and that is the the sole purpose is intimidation Exactly. And, and, and again, I think, you know, there's more of us than there are of them, right? Like they're a small minority, uh, as much as they want to think they're not, um, you know, the vast majority of Canadians are vaccinated. The vast majority, you know, are still doing what they can to try to prevent the spread of COVID and to try to live in a community and in a society. And that's the thing. Those people don't care about a community or society. They care about me, 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 I, 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 um, and it's an individualistic, you know, there's this bleeding in of this American ideal, uh, like individualistic attitude um, that's harmful. But the, most of us 
you know, I care about my neighbors, even if I don't necessarily know them. Um, and that's the difference between progressive and this like hard right fascist fringe. There's organizations like Equal Voice and campaign schools and things like that, that try to encourage women, especially marginalized women to run. But now having had that experience as somebody in political office on the municipal level, are you still encouraging women to, to get into the ring? Yeah. I mean, we have some amazing women running in Peterborough for city council, um, not for mayor, unfortunately, but like, again, mayor is just one vote. Like we don't have a strong mayor system, you know, it's just one vote on council. Um, so there's fantastic progressive women running in Peterborough. You know, my hope is that a bunch of them get elected. One of the best parts of the job that I enjoy the most is engaging with young people. Like I'm just looking forward to Gen Z coming in. I just want a bunch of these gender fluid, queer, progressive kids to fucking, and they're not even kids anymore. They're adults. I just, I feel like I'm a hundred years old these days. Um, and, uh, I just want it to be like a bunch of these like openly by polyamorous kids coming in and get, you know, and just shaking up the system. And I tell them that anytime I get to talk to a class of young people, um, or at pride or wherever, you know, because you can run when you're 18, you know, which, and I'm young in those political rooms and I'm like almost 37. So again, I'm still young, but I'm also like, there's 20 years of, of people behind me now that are able to run and are able to vote and can really make some change. So I'm going to continue to encourage that. I think, you know, the, the, the municipal election is coming up too soon to have anybody else run, but in 2026, oh man, I'm hoping that it's just like a whole bunch of change. I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Want to keep the conversation going? Subscribe to the Clearing a New Path newsletter. Drop me an email, follow the podcast on social media, and or you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Clearing a New Path podcast artwork is supported by the graphic design of Katie Wilhelm. And the music branding is by The Hankering Studio. The podcast is produced by Radar Media in Thames Centre, Ontario. It is the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga or neutral peoples who once used this land as their traditional beaver hunting grounds. The First Nations communities closest to the studio are Chippewa of the Thames First Nation, Oneida Nation of the Thames, Muncie, Delaware, First Nation, and the Chippewas of Kettle and Stony Point. I will speak to many more people across Turtle Island this season, and as a settler here, I'm committed to deepening understanding of colonialism, the TRC's calls to action, and to reframing responsibilities to land and community. I am grateful to Mother Earth and Creator for the opportunity for love and connection into the spirits of the elders and the medicine people who still walk the earth. Until next time, 